1947, American sociologist Carl Zimmerman published his 800-page maxim opus, Family and Civilization. In it, he identified 11 symptoms of final decay that can be observed in the fall of the Greek and Roman civilizations. And they are these. No-fault divorce, increased disrespect for parenthood and parents, meaningless marriage rites and ceremonies, defamation of past national heroes, acceptance of alternative marriage forms, widespread attitudes of feminism, narcissism, and hedonism, propagation of anti-family sentiment, acceptance of most forms of adultery, rebellious children, increased juvenile delinquency, and lastly, a common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. All of these have found their way into mainstream America. You look around, it's obvious, depraved humanity going from bad to worse. Thomas Schreiner said, moral degradation is the pathway to destruction. We just recently had June Pride Month pushed upon us, forced upon us more forcefully than ever. But what about the church? What about in-house deception? Are we immune? I think not. It is easy to say, look what's going on out there, and Jude wants us to examine what is going on in here. And in here. Adrian Rogers once said that some who receive the truth end up rejecting the truth and then ridiculing the truth and then trying to replace the truth. And he called them snakes in the garden. Once strong institutions like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Columbia that found, were founded to train pastors are now as anti-Christian as ever. Once great churches are denying the inerrancy of Scripture, they are rejecting Christ, they are ordaining women elders, they are ordaining homosexual clergy, they are advocating same-sex marriage, and the list goes on. Once solid Christians are caving. There was a study done that said that, found that 25% of people who profess to follow Christ say they are not relying on God's unmerited grace to get them to heaven. Lifeway and Ligonier do a survey every two years of the state of beliefs among professing believers. And in September 2020 was their last survey. They found that 42% of professing believers say, yes, God accepts worship from all religions. When it comes to God the Son, 65% said, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That is the heresy of Arianism that says that Jesus is not God. They found that only 38% of professing believers agree with the biblical doctrine of predestination. They found that 18% believe that the Bible contains, and I quote, helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 17% say that modern science disproves the Bible. There were some bright spots. 100% agree that God created male and female. 90% say that extramarital sex is a sin. 88% say abortion is a sin. And yet, 27% of professing believers say that gender, gender identity is not fixed by God, but is a matter of choice. And so, like that horrendous Florida condo collapse that we have been watching, yeah, huge tragedy things fall from within 
after doing studies, they found that possibly there are some people that knew of some issues with that building that could have been fixed, but they would have had to get everyone out of the building and not take any payment or any rent or anything like that to be able to fix it. And it would have taken a long time. Maybe they would have had to tear the whole place down. Got to watch the fault lines. Progressive Christianity has made startling inroads. Biblical truth has been thrown overboard. Christians are caving in on every front and not giving much resistance. And ask yourself, have I believed something wrong? Have I taught something unsound? Have I done something ungodly? Jude is enough to give us a reality check. Jude stops us in our tracks. Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he said that after my departure, savage wolves would come in from among your own selves, not sparing the flock and draw them away to themselves. So it is no wonder why Jude drops some imprecatory fire here in verses 11 through 16. We, we find very clearly this idea. Jesus condemns the ungodly. Jesus condemns the ungodly who infiltrate the church deceptively. And we find that God does not take it lightly. If there was ever a sword thrust of a book, it is Jude, this most neglected of New Testament letters. Jude packs a punch. It was written by the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who preferred to be known as Christ's slave. A humble man giving hearty approval and an appeal to heed the word of God. He was writing to a church that had existed for some 30 or 40 years. At that point, all the apostles except for John, who lived at the close of the century, had been martyred. The early church was vulnerable. Fault lines were evident. They were tempted to crumble under the pressure, and they were under severe attack. Externally from Rome, but internally from within. An aggressive, deceptive infiltration from proto-Gnostic apostates that were sowing seeds of doctrinal error and advocating sinful living. This was like a worm eating its way out of an apple. And Jude called the church to contend in intense spiritual warfare for the faith once for all delivered, for the word of God. The primary issue he was dealing with was rebellion and immorality. There were some in the gathered church that did not love Jesus, and it began to show in their words and their deeds. Ungodly living always is, is moral and theological. And apostates fall away, and they may stay personally and corporately connected to the gathered church, but theologically and spiritually, they have left. Jude is the only New Testament book that is exclusively dedicated to confronting these errors, and Jude is warning beloved believers with a very strong appeal, an urgent appeal. The thrust of Jude is this, that slaves of Christ, chosen and kept, verses 1 and 2, must contend for the faith, verses 3 and 4, knowing that God judges evildoers, verses 5 through 16. We're finishing that section today. Persevering in, min, in mercy, verses 17 to 23, and trusting God's promise, verses 24 and 25. 
Slaves of Christ, chosen and kept, must contend for the faith, knowing God judges evildoers, persevering in mercy and trusting God's promise. Because the ungodly had snuck in, seemingly through the side door. Who were they? What were they doing? They're largely unidentified. But they were Christ deniers. They were scripture twisters. And they were licentious livers. We can do whatever we want. And we can believe whatever we want. And God clearly makes his displeasure known. In this passage today, in verses 11 through 16, we see God denounce their depravity and then declare their deception and then decree their doom and then describe their delusion. The first point in verse 11 is that God denounces their depravity very strongly. Verse 11 begins this way. Look at it. It says, woe to them. Woe. When you see woe in the Bible, it is a denunciation. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He says, woe to them. This is an imprecatory statement. It's for doom. Imprecatory means calling on God to judge righteously. And there's this downward spiral of sin. You notice in verse 11, they walked in the way. They're traveling along. It's the manner of life. They have abandoned themselves, and then they perished. Perish is a dramatic way of saying the doom is already settled. The fate is already settled. It ties into verse 5, where it speaks of Israel in the wilderness that were destroyed because of unbelief. Same word for perished here. They'd be plunged into ruin, and what Jude does is give three Old Testament examples that shows these three characteristics of error. First, he, he mentions Cain. They're, they're like Cain, who we know murdered Abel, and, and it was out of a lack of love for God. It wasn't out of a lack of love, first and foremost, for his brother, but a lack of love for God. He didn't worship God rightly. He didn't care about his brother, but it was because he had departed from love of God to hate he had rejected the sovereignty of God. That's why 1 John 3.12 tells us, do not be like Cain. It throws you right over to Genesis 4, and you go, what happened there? Well, it explains. He was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Don't be like Cain. And then don't be like Balaam. This is not chronological. This is... This is the downward spiral of sin because Korah came before Balaam. But Balaam, and this takes us to Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam is a prophet hired to curse Israel, and he wanted to do it to get the money. He, for money, told people sin doesn't matter. He encouraged immorality. He was greedy for money. Deuteronomy 23 tells us, when you came out of Egypt, they hired against you Balaam to curse you. I told you, I think, before that if, if you're going to study Jude, that you need to keep 2 Peter chapter 2 on speed dial. And so you'll notice a lot of, a lot of overlaps with 2 Peter chapter 2, and you notice you get a, a, couple, a couple other tidbits of information. And here's what it says, for, 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the gain of wrongdoing. He was greedy. Jesus in Revelation 2 speaks to the church at Pergamum and he says this, I have some things against you. 
You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught in the church, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. He moves to Korah in number 16. Korah rejected God's authority. He didn't care about God's word. He didn't care about who God had put over them to lead. He refused to submit to church leaders. He was insubordinate to God and church leaders. He refused the lordship of God and the scripture's authority, and he was dismissive in his dispute against Moses. He refuted him. He spoke against him. He was hostile in rebellion. It takes you to Numbers 26. Numbers 26 tells us that Datham and Abiram contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. And then it says this, they contended against the Lord. The, and what happened? It was a big warning, okay? This was like a big warning sign. They contended against the Lord, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. I don't think anyone's forgetting that. You know, last week, and kids were all out of Hume Lake, and uh, they felt an earthquake that had happened up near Tahoe, and you know, sometimes when there's an earthquake, the, the, the ground actually cracks, right? Well, here, the, the ground opened up, swallowed them up whole. That became a warning. And the picture here is of woe. A woe is complete destruction being, being it's denunciation, a complete denunciation. In fact, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 9. You know what he said? He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And he wasn't saying something light, like, bummer if I don't do it. He was saying, if I don't preach the gospel, I'm finished. If I don't preach the gospel, I'm being insubordinate to God. If I don't preach the gospel, it's like I'm saying that God made a mistake in calling me to preach. We saw back in verses 5 through 10 some reminders not to traffic in rebellion, not to traffic in unbelief, not to traffic in un immorality, but to believe the word of God and to submit to the lordship of Christ and to live a life, to seek to live a life pleasing to God, one of purity. This is what we see first, first off in verse 11. God denounces their depravity and uses these three Old Testament examples. Secondly, in verses 12 and 13, God declares their deception. He does so with these pithy word pictures. He starts by saying in verse 12, these are, he's following a pattern, he's expressing something about the same group of people. And he says first, they're hidden reefs in your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. What is he getting at? Some translations will say they're blemishes. Better translation is reefs, rocks. The, the reefs on your love feasts. Early Christians would share a meal during the love feast, as it was known. They, they shared a meal together, and presumably followed by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And it was a powerful symbol of love between brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jude is saying, all is not as it looks. There are some that are not characterized by love. They're part of the church, but they're, they're part of the gathered, professing church, but there's a distinction here being made between a genuine believer and them. 
And he says they're hidden rocks, they're reefs, rocks in, in the sea close to shore, covered with water that would be dangerous to vessels and people. I, this week, Angela and I, last week, were up near Monterey, and, and we, we watched uh, along the coast, a very you know, rough, rocky coast, and there were surfers out there literally surfing between rocks. I'm like, you got to be really brave to do that or be a really good surfer to do that. They're taking their lives in their hands. But at these meals that the, that the church would have together, these false teachers were, were undermining the faith of the sincere, just like a submerged reef could tear up the hull of a ship. Remember back in 1978, my parents took us uh, to Hawaii when we were in high school, and I was boogie boarding, and I didn't see a reef under the, under the waves, and my head hit the reef. I still have a dent in my forehead. It explains some things, I know. But there's a destructive deception that there's a the reef under the water that you cannot see. And here, there's a destructive deception that these people were like reefs under the water. And they were doing what they were doing without fear. With no fear of God, with no reverence for God or his judgment. They were these dangerous hypocrites that were pretending to love people and they were hiding their dangerous teaching and their dangerous lifestyles and they were threatening the church and they did so with no conscience about it. When you think about life in the church, we are to love each other in the body of Christ intensely. We are to accept one another. But we are not to tolerate falsehood. But he says in verse 12 that that these people, they're, they're like it says shepherds feeding themselves. Some versions of the ESV just says they are taking care of themselves. Shepherds feeding themselves. They only thought of their own appetites. This, this throws you to Ezekiel 34, which says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't they feed the flock? They were attempting, presumably, to lead God's people with no concern for anyone but themselves and there was no effort to care for the flock. They just wanted to make their life comfortable. And he says they're waterless clouds. See all these pictures coming. Water, a waterless cloud in those days. You'd want the cloud to come to bring the rain, to water the crops so that you could live and make a living. And, and he says they're like waterless clouds. They're blown by. They pass on by. And they don't give the promised, expected, refreshing rain for the crops. It's all show and no substance. There's nothing of substance. They gave nothing to those who were foolish enough to listen to them. They promised great things. They delivered nothing. What a disappointing deception. Destructive and disappointing. And it would take you to Proverbs 25, which just says this. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Disappointing in that deception. And then in verse 12, he says, they're fruitless trees in late autumn. Like, there should be fruit, and there's not. They're, they're twice dead, and they'll be uprooted. Fruitless trees, they're worthless, they're disappointing. And they're twice dead, they're sterile, they're lifeless. You know, when you see a tree that you can just literally, like, lean over and just, like, just cut it up for firewood. Tear it up by its roots and burn it. The uprooting of a tree is an Old Testament metaphor for God's judgment. Because their deception was a deadly deception. In verse 13, they're called wild waves of the sea. Just wild waves casting up the foam of their own shame. They're lifeless, they're fruitless, 
and there's evil deeds. Shame. Wild here means out of control. Think of out of control waves that are just spewing up grimy foam that, that coats the beach, leaving it sticky with the residue. They're foaming up their shame. There's seafood and seaweed, no seafood there. Just seaweed. I love seafood. But now I'm thinking of lunch. Seaweed, refuse, trash, just going on the waves, just rolling over on the waves. And then just getting, you know, spewed out onto the shore. Foaming up their shame, the overflowing ungodliness, tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. What a disgraceful deception that is being described. Verse 13, he says, they're like wandering stars. Like, like shooting stars, maybe, but, but more accurately, this would be wandering planets that can't guide anyone. Off course, unable to guide people, lead people in the way of evil rather than good, and they would mislead many. These are the kind of people he's referring to. And then he says this, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. There is a finality to that judgment, which makes it so serious. These are the kind of things that we are to be thinking about as we go about our daily life as Christians. That we would not forget that this is life and death. This is about souls. There's a lot going on in life, I know. We all have just this list of things, from the small to the big. But this, and often in the Bible, Future judgment is, is focused upon fire that is reserved for the disobedient. But darkness is also a theme. And, and what you'll notice is that fire and darkness are often spoken of in the context of God's judgment. And you know that fire and darkness clash. They, they don't coexist. They're, they're both metaphors for future judgment. And what this is telling us is this is going to be terrible. This is going to be terrible. In fact, 2 Peter 2 says, these are people that, that entice unsteady souls and their hearts are trained in greed and then Peter calls them accursed children. That's how serious this is. In Philippians it says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's declaring the deception. It's like he's putting this, this huge spotlight that lights up the darkness of their deeds. This is something they cannot escape from. He can't escape the brightness of that light. This is like a police cruiser with a, with a spotlight on it that just shines up the, the yard, or this is like a police helicopter with a searchlight that literally you cannot escape. It lights up everything. And there are some blatant and deceptive things that they get forced upon many believers. Forced acceptance of sexual deviancy, liberal progressive theologies, all sorts of things. But what is getting at here too is not just the lifestyle, but the, the hidden heart things that get brought out in the words and the actions. Like, like greed, it's harder to pin down. Like gossip, that's more slippery. Like, like subtle error, 
harder to detect. Like flattery? That's tricky. Don't ignore the warning signs. This is what Judah's like shouting at us. Don't ignore the warning signs. Resist the pressure to cave in. Up against the insincerity of liars, hold to the truth. Insist upon the truth. Imitate good, but acknowledge infiltration. Align with truth. Don't take heretical candy from strangers in orthodox-looking clothing. Like, like handle your podcast with care and your, your Bible studies and, and teachings that you receive. Handle it with care. And don't take a vacation from the Word of God because when you leave your mind open and your, your heart and mind is left open to whatever might come, then, then, then your, your, your mind and your heart gets filled with destructive things. you got to put the no vacancy sign up and not allow alien foreign matter to come into your soul and clog your heart and mind. You need to guard your heart. You need to guard your home. You need to guard the household of God. Care about your brothers and sisters in Christ so much that you would do that. And some of you might be struggling with your faith. You might feel like my soul is just so empty though and and maybe my soul's gotten really filled with foreign objects. And maybe, maybe the world has infected me so much that my soul is seeing evil as good. And you recognize that, you can repent. And, and repent from your sins and turn to Christ. You see, in, the first thing we see is God is denouncing their depravity very strongly. And the second thing we see is declaring their deception. Third, verses 14 and 15. Now God decrees their doom, and what he really does is he, he describes the doom that has already been decreed. He's following a train of thought here. He's saying these, these condemned creepers that he has described, and what we find out now is that long before Jude dropped imprecatory fire, Enoch dropped some apocryphal fire. Look at verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. We didn't know this. We find this out here. And here's what he said. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, verse 15, to execute judgment on all. And look at how many times ungodly is mentioned. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch delivered the message of a prophet. He spoke forth something that is true. Verse 14, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Literally it reads, he is coming. This is about the second coming of Christ. It's about the impending, imminent, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. And angels will accompany Christ in judgment. Myriads of them and angels Coming at Christ's judgment indicates it will be stunning and magnificent and majestic. Now, what we know is that Jude, and this is an interesting thing about Jude, just like we saw that he was quoting um, something from outside the Bible about Michael the archangel disputing with the devil about the body of Moses so that the devil wouldn't use 
presumably the, using the body of Moses for some sort of worship for Israel. And Michael, the archangel, uh, didn't presume to pronounce a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Came with the Lord's authority. Here, it is clear that Jude is quoting from an apocryphal source, an extra-biblical source, something that is not in the Bible. He's quoting Enoch 1, verse 9, which does not mean that the book of Enoch was regarded as inspired or equal with Scripture. But what the Holy Spirit had Jude do is use contemporary writing that was not contrary to Revelation. And this verse, Enoch 1.9, is actually, we, there are original uh, versions of this verse in Aramaic, in Greek, in Ethiopian, and Latin versions. And it starts this way. Here's how that verse starts, Enoch 1.9. Behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. And what you'll notice that the Holy Spirit has Jude do is to insert the word kurios where he is, Lord. The Lord comes. This is a Christ-centered usage of Enoch 1.9. It's Christ-centered, applies the text referring to God's judgment to Christ, the same as other New Testament writers do. In 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation. And what this is, is a searing message of impending doom. It is strong, and it is speaking of what Jesus will do. He will execute judgment on all. It expresses the purpose of his second coming. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they've committed in such an ungodly way, they're godless, irreverent, irreligious, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now here we have to stop. It's very easy for us to say, well, they're saying bad things about Jesus, but you know, people say things sometimes. God takes it much stronger. By the way, in verse 15 where it says ungodly sinners, literally reads sinful sinners, sinful sinners, that sinful sinners have spoken against him. Against who? Against Jesus. Harsh things spoken against Jesus mean something to God. They use unharsh, uh, ungodly, harsh, reproaching words. They're grave words. They are harsh words, inhumane words, cruel words, uncivil words against Christ. We get a warning in 1 Samuel 2, which says, talk no, talk no more very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord God is one of knowledge. He's a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. You see, God never erases the hard drive. Everything is kept. A record of all the things that ungodly, unrepentant sinners have said against Jesus. And he is coming. The Bible tells us over and over that, that the Lord comes. Deuteronomy 33, in the blessing that Moses pronounced on the Israelites before his death, he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with myriads of his holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. He's coming in judgment. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall take his stand upon the earth. He will judge. Zechariah looked forward to the time when the Lord my God will come, he says, and all his holy ones with him. They're all looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Why do you think we read in Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or, or why do you despise your brother? For we, all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Paul said that he has fixed a day. He told those in Athens, he, will fix, he has fixed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. He's speaking of Jesus Christ and his return. In Revelation chapter 1, we read this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. It will happen. This is how it will be. There's a lot of people that want to explain all this away, and if you believe the Bible, you have to believe this. The doom is already decreed. It's revealed by God. This is how it's going to be. This is what Jesus will do. Anything God says he will do, he will do. It will happen. And sometimes, you know, words don't get kept. Warranties run out, right? Or they're not honored. Our garbage disposal went out twice recently, and I'm like, oh, well, we bought the one 10 years ago with the 10-year warranty. Let's call. And I called, and they're like, we're going to send you a new one. They're honoring the warranty. Wow. Sometimes... We won't keep our word. God always keeps his word. When God says something is going to happen, it will. The king is coming with blessing. The king is coming with judgment, and all will give account to God. What does that make me want to do? The only thing I can do, engage in all-out evangelism with anyone I can who's living and breathing, because I don't know who is who. Only God knows. This tells me about the value of souls. This tells me that the cross... Was, was to save souls. Uh, it's worth the cross, it's worth my time. That I should be engaging in all-out evangelism because I don't know who is who. And that, we, that you shouldn't shake the dust off too quickly from your feet with those you do not like. You should keep trying. And you shouldn't keep the dust on too long with those you do like and you keep giving them a pass. All sin and evil is from the pit of hell. Sin and evil resides in and springs forth from the human heart. Your calling is not to be politically correct in the world. Your calling as a Christian is to be biblically faithful. There is one solution to our sin problem. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior from sin, our only sacrifice for sin. He died on the cross in our place as our substitute. He took the punishment we deserved. He is the only mediator between God and man. We are living in a world that wants to erase all of that. Wants to tell us that none of that matters one bit. It matters supremely. God denounces their depravity in this passage. He declares their deception. He decrees their doom. And you need to look at verse 16 with me. Because when you look at verse 16, what you notice is it's quite disheartening. After all of that, they don't get it. There's no EQ. There's no self-awareness. These are grumblers. Now, for those of you that go, I like to grumble, you know, every morning before I have my coffee, or I like to grumble about things. This is not the kind of grumbling we're talking about where you just make like, you know, I don't like my breakfast or whatever. That's, you know, ungrateful. But this is not the grumbling we're talking about. When it says these are grumblers, this is getting stronger. It's not getting weaker. It's not saying, oh, and by the way, they're grumblers. No, they're grumblers and they're malcontents. And what it means is they're murmuring. This is the idea of a cooing of doves. They're conferring secretly. This is no small thing. They are discontentedly complaining against God who determines their fate. They're gossiping against God. They're saying bad things against God. Lucian the cynic said this. 
You're satisfied by nothing that befalls you. You complain at everything. You don't want what you have. You long for what you haven't got. In winter, you wish it were summer. In summer, that it were winter. What did the people of God do? Psalms tells us they murmured in their tents and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. In Luke, we read that they grumbled at Jesus because, and they said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They're saying, he's not God. He doesn't know. 1 Corinthians 10, we are warned, do not grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. These grumblers follow after their own sinful desires. It's the idea of pursuing pleasure rather than pleasing God and blessing others. Their sinful passion is their goal. It says that they're loudmouth boasters. They're boasting in their sin. It's excessive. It's, it's puffed up. It's swollen like a beast thing or a, or a, or a sprained ankle. It, the, the big words against God. And they show favoritism. It means they... Literally, it means to rise up from the ground to welcome. It's like, ah, you're here. It's the idea of flattery. It's from a Hebrew idiom that means to lift up the face. It's the idea of manipulation. It says that they do this to gain advantage. They're, they're self-serving. They butter people up so they will so give them something. They'll pay them something. They'll, they show partiality, which is forbidden in the Old Testament. This is blaming God for your life. This is blaming God for your situation in life. This is scheming sinfully. This is why Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. After it says that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then you read, and by the way, don't, don't grumble or dispute. Take the gospel seriously. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and aliens, strangers and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on against your soul. So these that are being spoken of are being denounced. The, the delusions are being unmasked. The, the, their doom ha, that has been decreed as being referenced, and yet they keep doing what, what they're doing, and they do it proudly without a care because they have no fear of God. John Owen said this, they spend their thoughts on sinful pleasures. They refuse to behold the glory of Christ. Some continually worry about all the things of the world. They seek promotion and rewards for all they do. They're transformed into the image of the world, becoming earthly, unspiritual, and stupid. The blindness, the darkness, the foolishness of poor sinners. Do they realize who it is they despise? Who they are rejecting and for what? If you're a professing believer today, you need to adhere to the lordship of Christ. You need to align yourself under Christ and his word. It's interesting that we get such serious words from Jude. Christ's half-brother who didn't believe in him while he was doing his ministry on earth, but after the resurrection, God opened his heart to the gospel. There is comfort in Jude. First two verses talk about those who are called and beloved and kept by Jesus. But, but God is saying, I know. I'm sovereign. I am providentially orchestrating this whole thing, and my plan won't be thwarted. Some of you have lost hope. You're, you're like... But look at the world. Look how bad it is. 
there's, there's room and there's reason for confidence here. You see in the last two verses that God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. You know, Jesus, as much as people don't want to hear it, Jesus condemns the ungodly who infiltrate the church deceptively. He denounces their depravity, he declares their deception, he decrees their doom, and he describes their delusion. Let me ask you, what do you think God wants us to do about this? We just go and have a burger? What do we do? What reaction response is expected? God didn't just give us his word and say, now go do whatever you want with it, which is what a lot of people are doing. He intends for us to respond. I've thought so much about this. I just want to share with you three encouraging ideas that have helped me as I'm processing these words, these strong life or death eternity words. And the first idea is this. Be cautious. If you're a believer, be cautious. For example, you might run across someone who teaches some good theology, but some of their doctrine is whack, okay? It is janky, it is wrong, it is, it is unsound. And, and some of you are gonna be like, but, but some of it's good though. Don't accept their teaching just because some of it is good. It's like when you see a movie and you say it only had 15 cuss words. How much poison is okay for you? We allow way too much poison into our souls. I mean, how many so-called Christian leaders are denying the inerrancy, the infallibility, and the inspiration of Scripture? They are not acknowledging as binding on their consciences or their lives. They're masquerading around a facade, rejecting God's authoritative word, spouting recycled heresies. All the heresies are recycled. Some are just like deftly, you know, twisting Scripture like this expert pretzel maker or something. People are like getting their elbows on the table and chomping down on the unsuspecting. You know how many Christians just accept whatever comes their way because they've been given the steady diet of, you know, unsound teaching. No danger of that at Grace Church of Orange, right? I would say largely... Our danger is pride. Pride that goes before destruction. You know how you know if you're prideful about this message? Have you already thought about five heretics you know? Don't be looking around for who's a heretic. You need to ask this question. Lord, is it I Is it me? Then you would be humbly cautious. Like whose false ideas have you accepted and you're bringing into the church? You need to impose a strict self-examination. Contend for the faith. And, And as you contend for the faith, it will be interpreted as being against people. But you are for the faith. You are for the truth. You are you are contending for the faith. You will offend as as you defend the faith. But don't purposely offend, don't be a jerk. But as you purposely contend, you will offend people as they are offended at Christ. So double your efforts. Be hypervigilant. Be cautious. 
Bloom wherever God has planted you, but be cautious and be mindful of your thoughts and your words and your actions. Secondly, be consistent. Be cautious and then be consistent. Help my unbelief should be your prayer. Some of you are struggling in your faith. Well, if you're struggling in your faith, it's not the time to throw in the towel. It's to dive deeper into the word of God and into fellowship with other Christians and don't run from the battle. And the burden, the burden upon so many believers today that you are having to navigate the rejection and the reversal of all biblical standards in the marketplace, in your neighborhood. And I hear, I talk to people all the time who are saying, I'm being forced to adhere to ungodly ideas against my convictions. What do you do about that? I know one thing. Christ strengthens his church. And to stand firm, winsomely, and humbly and boldly with love for all people in an immoral culture where we speak up, where you have to choose your battles and count the cost and cling to Christ. But if you, in some way, think that, you know, this isn't that big of a deal, we are far past inflection points. There's an imprecating punishment here of unidentified heretics that have crept into the church unnoticed, unchecked, innocently passing inspection. But don't give up your position of a solid handling of the word of God. Be cautious and consistent, unmoved by error, knowing your future is secure. And lastly, lastly this. This is the most important part. Be compassionate. This is what Jude wants us to do. We will see it in, in coming weeks. You must be compassionate. You must be merciful. You should be asking this, not, wow, you know, making exclamations of, look how bad it is in the world. But, Lord, how can I help your kingdom program right where you've put me because I'm awestruck at your mercy and saving me from my sins. I'm, I'm so undeserving of heaven and my heart is flooded by grace. Well, if your heart is flooded by grace, you will be merciful towards people because if you're growing in grace, you will show mercy. Be ever so merciful. People are dying and going to hell. Be ever so merciful. People are struggling. People who profess to know Christ are struggling. Just don't despise anyone. Jude never says, by the way, hate them. Shout them down. Despise them. Never. You're going to find out that we're going, we're, we, need to, we need to show mercy. We need to help those that are struggling. We need to Remind the strong, but we also need to refute, mercifully refute those who are in grave error and refute those who are gone. Never take glee in another person's downfall, but you do need to let the weeds and the wheat grow together. Have you ever rooted for someone's downfall? For them to get what's coming to them? We've all done it. It's easy to despise. We want judgment to fall on those... We that are opposed to Christ or to us and those we disagree with. Paul's a great example for us to be merciful. In Acts 17, he's in Athens, and he, his spirit is being provoked as he sees a city full of idols. And they're mocking God. They're mocking Christians. And what does he do? He doesn't say, you know, you guys are a bunch of idolaters. I'm leaving. He says, I noticed that you had a, a grave marker, an inscription that said to an unknown God, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he pivoted at that point, and he preached Christ. You need to pivot wherever you can and preach Christ. Turn mocking into a mercy ministry. You don't have to win every argument. 
God will make all things right. And, and look, I don't like rounded edges, okay? I like things definite. But you have to allow room for nuance. You have to be able to talk with people. You have to know what people's position is based on and how that is working out for them. You can't preach the gospel, by the way, without telling them about their sin and how it has separated them from a holy God and they are under the just wrath of God. You're the messenger. And the Bible says the, the, the righteous shall live by faith. That means that God has provided a way of salvation and he gives his righteousness to those who passively receive it by faith, not actively by their works, by grace alone. And you need to be compassionate. There are, you need to be merciful to those who are caught or struggling. Remind the strong, rescue the wavering, refute the gone. But do not hammer the world. Answer it with mercy. Our culture is taking a sledgehammer to everything God has said. And how must we respond? We must advance on our knees with the word of God and prayer. Jesus is the one that condemns the ungodly who infiltrate his church. And I think, here's what I think. I think that the Holy Spirit has given us Jude to keep us on our toes. That's what I think. To comfort us, to give us assurance, but also to tell us, hey, you know what? This is how it's going to be. In the midst of all your living, be cautious, be consistent, be compassionate. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And leave the judgment to God. Yes, at the harvest, he will put the sickle in and he will reap. And the weed, the weeds and the wheat are going to grow together and they're gonna, they look alike, but they're not alike. They're drastically different in nature, which makes it all a bit unsettling, doesn't it? A little confusing, doesn't it? And once again, you and I are shown that we cannot get life wired. We must always trust our sovereign Lord so that no cave-in of massive proportions would happen on our watch. Lord God, we thank you that you are merciful, that you are so good, that you are so kind, that you are so loving, that you are good in all your ways and kind in all your deeds. And Lord, we are living in treacherous times, and you know it all. You know far more than we do about what is going on. And Lord, I pray you would strengthen your church, strengthen your people as you continue to open hearts to the gospel, that you would be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.